This morning, our scripture reading is from 1 Kings chapter 16, verses 29 through 33, and this can be found on page 298 in your pew Bible. If you don't own a Bible, please feel free to take the one in front of you as our gift. This is God's word. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel and Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than any who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria, and Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Derek, for reading God's word for us this morning. Good morning. My name is Bill Gorman. I'm the campus pastor here at the Brookside campus, and we're really glad that you've joined us this morning. And a few weeks ago, uh, I mentioned that uh, the construction would be starting on a room in the lower level of the uh, campus here. Um, that's due to the incredible growth that has occurred in the past year, especially with our children's ministries. I just wanted to give you a brief update on that. Construction on that room actually begins tomorrow. So if you've been downstairs today dropping kids off, you may have noticed um, that we've already shifted some rooms around in preparation. You may have also noticed that there's a, a temporary classroom in that mezzanine level, that hallway level that goes through. Um, so meaning for a few weeks that you won't have to a walkthrough from the men's and women's restroom. So if you're using the men's restroom, you have to go down this staircase. The women's restroom, you have to go down this staircase because you can't for these weeks, we'll have actually a classroom in the hall so that you won't be able to pass through there. Um, another adjustment until that construction is completed is that each Sunday uh, for the summer while that's happening will be what we call Worship Together Sunday, meaning that we'll only have programming for birth through kindergarten and our elementary school students will be with us in the service. So if you see some elementary school students that you haven't seen around before, welcome them. Um, we're glad that you're here with us and worshiping together with us these weeks. Uh, and finally, while construction's happening on that new room downstairs, we're going to be working to complete a, a rewiring project, uh, replacing a lot of the old wiring in this building which, with uh, much newer, safer wiring, which is a good thing. Part of that, though, in a couple of weeks will mean actually rewiring all these chandeliers. So in a, in a couple of weeks, you're going to come here on a Sunday, and there are going to be about you know, 16 pews missing from the middle because they will put a, a lift in here. The lift won't be here, but the pews will slowly move. Just be ready. That's going to be a weird Sunday. Just know that's coming. Um, and nothing terrible happened. We're just in the process of re rewiring and making this uh, place, you know, a little bit more, more safe from an electrical standpoint. So uh, once again, thanks for your patience and flexibility on all that as we make these uh, important and actually really exciting changes to the space that God has entrusted with us um, this summer. So let's pray, and then we'll dive into looking at this text that Derek read for us. Um, Father in heaven, we're thankful that you feed and sustain us with your word that you have made us as creatures who do not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from your mouth. And so now as we prepare to look at these words that you have spoken, I pray that you would empower us by your Holy Spirit to be able to understand and apply them to our lives. Would you feed and nourish us in them? In Jesus' name, amen. Bill, I, I just can't 
go on like this. It doesn't seem like God is answering my prayers. Bill, when I look around at the world and see so much suffering and injustice, I, I really struggle to believe that, that God is good, that he actually cares. Bill, I, I'm not sure I can handle this anymore. Bill, I'm afraid about where our world is going. You see, as a pastor, those kinds of questions, those statements, those feelings, people come to me regularly with them, whether it's in an email or after church on a Sunday, over coffee. And I often feel those things as well. I think one of the big reasons that we feel those kinds of wrestling so strongly is that increasingly we live in a cultural context where belief in God is not only just one option among many for how to make sense of the world and what's happening in it, but it is more and more often one of the more difficult and often seemingly less probable options for making sense of the world when you think about the broader cultural narrative. So if God is real, if he truly exists, if he is the God of the Bible, how is this God going to keep his promises when so much of the world and our experience seems to run contrary to what we expect of how God would work and how we would expect him to rescue? How can we come to a place of faith in this God if, if we don't believe or if we've stopped believing at some point? Or maybe even more, more basically than that, why, why would I want to come to a place of faith in God? Or if, if you do believe, how do you maintain your faith in this? Well, today we're beginning a new series in which we will discover that we are not the first ones to wrestle with these questions. To wonder if the God of the Bible is real, if he is the one true God. To, to be overwhelmed by a world gone awry, to wonder if and how God is going to keep his promises, to wonder if God is really for us, to wonder if he's really with us. And what we're going to discover along the way is that even when it feels like everything's caving in, even when you feel alone, even when you feel lost, afraid, or outnumbered, that God is still with us. God is still with us. You see, the way to faith and faithfulness is to embed our lives, to embathe our imaginations in the stories of God's faithfulness. And that's why so much of the Bible is written in the genre of narrative, because it's in the context of story that we learn what people are like and we learn to trust who they are. One uh, pastor and Bible scholar puts it this way. He says, Indeed, narrative takes up more space in the Bible than any other literary genre. We might guess that this is because narrative is the form of writing best suited to answering with clarity and conviction the key questions which the offer of a promise always raises. And that is what God is doing in the Bible. He's offering promises to us. And those are, can I trust the person making the promise? What happens when it seems as if he is failing to keep his promise? What will be the consequences if I trust him or if I don't? It is answers to these fundamental questions about the covenant, about our relationship with God, that the biblical narrative serve to give answers to.
And that's why Christ community, at Christ community, we often take large chunks of scriptures or even whole books of the Bible and spend time learning from them, getting to know them, letting them reshape our imaginations. If you were with us last year, we spent 57 weeks in the Gospel of Matthew just studying it, soaking in it. And we spend time just recently looking at the virtues and the vices. And in many ways, this series in the stories we're going to be looking at from the Old Testament, we will see the vices and virtues on display in action. And so for the next eight weeks, basically until school starts back up again, we're going to be taking a trek into the ancient world, into this old story together, discovering that it has profound wisdom for the modern world and ultimately points us to Jesus. And here's how our story begins. 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 29. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, son of Omri, reigned over Israel and Samaria for 22 years. Now, I want to let you in on a little secret as we begin this series. And that is the Bible can be really hard to read sometimes. For one, it's really long, right? I mean, if you pick up one of the few Bibles, this is not a short book. This is a long book. So it's hard to read because it's long. But it, two, it was also written a really long time ago and in, in not in English. I mean, we have English translations, but it was written in, in Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek. And it certainly wasn't addressed in the first place to people living in the 21st century in America. All of those things make it a hard book to read. So while I think we have a sense that it's a book about God and about Jesus, it can be really easy to get lost in the details, especially in the Old Testament. Where, what's going on? What's happening? Especially when we jump right into the middle of the story, which is what we're doing. Because I don't imagine that most of you thought to yourselves when you heard Derek read the passage of Scripture this morning that you said, oh, I see how this applies to my life and fits into the story of the Bible. I know exactly where we're at. Um, you were probably just impressed that the reader was able to pronounce all those names correctly. I mean, I know I was. So as we enter this new series this morning, we want to try, I want to try to tell you the story of the whole Bible in just a minute or two, just to kind of give us a, a sense of where in the world are we at in this big book, in this long story. And so here it goes. Here's the story of the Bible. It opens, page one, by introducing us to God to the one true God who creates everyone and everything by his powerful word. God speaks and things happen. He creates a good world full of beauty and life, and he creates human beings to rule this world with him. It creates a, a partnership with human beings to accomplish his work in the world. It's some of the world's first business partnership, God working together with his image bearers. And from the very beginning, human beings are given a choice. They can rule with God under his loving wisdom, letting him define right and wrong, good and evil, or they can choose to seize power for themselves, to define right and wrong on their own, good and evil on their own, apart from God. And on page three of the Bible, this is what happens. They do seize that power of self. They turn away from God, and every one of us has afterwards fallen in those footsteps. They allow evil and chaos and darkness enter into God's world, ruining it. This is all in the first three pages. But God does not abandon the world that he's made. 
He loves it. And so he chooses one family, this, this family of Abraham, and he promises that he will use this broken family to restore his blessing and wholeness to the whole world. And his promises to this family is that they will return to this land, to the garden, to the place where God's people dwells, that he will make a, a new family, a new dwelling, that he's going to restore everything the way it was. And over the course of the Old Testament, this whole first part of the Bible, you get the story being worked out. But it always seems like the story and the promises are in jeopardy. I mean, right from the beginning, Abraham and Sarah, they can't have kids. How is God going to make a nation out of them? And then they're stuck in Egypt. And then they, they get out of Egypt, but now they are disobeying God. At every turn, it seems like the promises of God are in jeopardy. And by the time you get all the way to the end of the Old Testament, the first part of the story, things don't look very good at all. And yet there still is a glimmer of hope that somehow, some way, God is going to fulfill his promises. With the opening of the New Testament, a new person comes who's from the line of Israel's kings who himself claims that he will be the fulfillment of all of God's promises. His name is Jesus. And Jesus succeeds where everyone else has always failed. He resists temptation always. He lives according to God's design always. And what we discover in the Gospels is that Jesus is himself God come to be with us. And Jesus the God-man, he takes all of the consequences of evil that human beings brought into the world and he brings that onto himself. On the cross, Jesus is unmade so that we can be remade. And he begins this thing called the church, which is really the story of the New Testament. This new people who live according to his design, who have their sins forgiven, who are able to forgive others, who are able to live self-sacrificially for others, who look forward to a day when Jesus will return, when he will come a second time and remake the whole world to set it right again. So there it is. I mean, really briefly, that's the, that's the story of the Bible. You can actually watch a really helpful video about a five or six minute video that we posted on our uh, Facebook and other social media this week. That's just a summary of how to read the Bible and that story of the Bible. But in our story, we're in the messiest place of the Old Testament. That's where we start in 1 Kings. It's 875 years before Jesus arrives on the scene. It's a thousand years after Abraham. It's after Moses. It's after Joshua. And the people have finally been unified into a kingdom. And that's where we pick up the story. Let's watch. The books of First and Second Kings, although they're two separate books in our Bibles, they were originally written as one book telling a unified story that continues on from the book of Samuel that came before it. So David has unified the tribes of Israel into a kingdom, and God promised that from his line would come a messianic king who would establish God's kingdom over the nations and fulfill the promises made to Abraham. So the book of Kings tells the story of the long line of kings that came after David, and none of them lived up to that promise. In fact, they run the nation of Israel right into the ground. The book is designed to have five main movements. The story begins and ends focus on Jerusalem, first with Solomon's reign and the construction of the temple, and then in this last section ending with Jerusalem's destruction and Israel's exile to Babylon. And the story leading up to this tragedy is what makes up the center three sections, which explain how Israel split into two rival kingdoms, how God tried to prevent the corruption of Israel by sending the prophets, and how exile became the unavoidable consequence of Israel's sin. 
From this point on, the story goes back and forth from north to south, tracing the fate of both kingdoms. Each one had about 20 successive kings, and as the author introduces each king, he evaluates their reign by a few criteria. Did they worship the God of Israel alone, or did they promote the worship of other gods? Did they deal with idolatry among the people? And did they remain faithful to the covenant like David, or do they become corrupt and unjust? And according to these criteria, the author finds no good kings in northern Israel, zero for 20. And then in southern Judah, only eight out of 20 get a positive rating, which connects to another huge purpose in this book, and that's to introduce the role of the prophets, key figures in Israel's history. So in the Bible, prophets were not fortune tellers. Rather, they spoke on behalf of the God of Israel, and they played the role of covenant watchdogs, which means they called out idolatry and injustice among the kings and the people. They were constantly reminding Israel of their calling to be a light to the nations, that they should obey the commands of the Torah, and so the prophets challenged Israel to repent and follow their God. In these center sections for each king, God then raises up prophets to hold them accountable. And the most prominent prophets are the northern ones, Elijah and his disciple Elisha, right here in the center of the book. Elijah was a wild man of a prophet living out in the desert, and his arch nemesis was the northern king Ahab and his Canaanite wife Jezebel. And so that's where we pick up the story this morning. You can watch the rest of that whole video of, of Kings. This is super helpful. It is also posted on our Facebook and social media if you want to watch the whole thing. And this is how Ahab is introduced to us in 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 30. It says, And Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. He was literally the worst king that had lived in Israel, the northern part of the kingdom, until this point. And why was he so bad? Well, that's what we're going to be looking at over these eight weeks as we've unpacked this story. But we get some clues right from the beginning in this introductory narrative where we're first meeting Ahab. Because beginning with verse 31, we learn that he, Ahab, took for his wife Jezebel, who was the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal, or Baal, and worshiped him. Now, we need to understand what's going on here. This is a politically motivated, a very politically savvy marriage. Ahab marrying Jezebel it makes an alliance with Israel, with one of their neighboring nations, linking them together. That was the motivation. But she was a Canaanite, and the Canaanites worshiped many gods. They, on the other hand, the Israelites were only supposed to worship the one true God. The Canaanites practiced human sacrifice. The Israelites were never to practice human sacrifices. In fact, the Canaanites were the very people that God had commanded his own people to be distinct, separate from. And after marrying Jezebel, though, Ahab begins to worship Baal, this Canaanite god, as well as he doesn't stop worshiping Yahweh, the God of Israel, but he just throws some worship of Baal in as well. You see, it's impossible for the faith commitments of our spouses not to affect us in some way. And Ahab goes so far not only in to, to worship Baal, but he actually sets up a temple, a house of worship for Baal in the land of Israel. And I just have to tell you, Baal worship was, was pretty nasty stuff. In the Canaanite mythology, Baal was the, the son of El, the, the kind of the master god. And he was the fertility god. He was the one who brought the rain, the storms. He brought new life. 
In fact, they viewed the rain as Baal's liquid seed. Yikes. Well, it makes you want to put a raincoat the next time you're outside. <laughs> and the people in ancient Near East, they held a belief. Uh, this is what, what anthropologists, archaeologists call sympathetic magic. They held this belief of sympathetic magic. And that is that if you want to get the gods to do something for you, what you need to do is, is act it out for them. And then if you act it out sort of vigorously or loudly enough, then, then they will respond by doing what it is that you're doing. So if you want fertility, then you act out fertility. So their temples were basically brothels, places of, of prostitution and incest and bestiality, slavery, abuse, awful kinds of stuff. And, and if that didn't work, they would cut themselves or offer child sacrifice. People say, you know, all religions are the same. Well, I don't know quite all the same. And at this point, you might be asking, well, why in the world would, would the Israelites even be tempted to be involved with any of this? It seems so re- repulsive. But we have to understand where they're at and the climate they're in. They're in an arid climate. They are desperately dependent on rain to water their animals, for their crops, for the survival of their families. They're directly dependent on the rain. Their Canaanites' neighbors say, look, we've lived here a lot longer than you have, and the way you get it to rain is by worshiping Baal, the storm god who controls the rain. You can begin to see, man, my family is suffering. It doesn't look like there's going to be enough rain. Maybe we need to try this thing with Baal. Maybe he can make it rain. And there's such great irony here. And the author of Kings doesn't want us to miss it. In fact, he makes sure that we don't miss it by putting a little story right here in the midst of this introductory narrative about the rebuilding of Jericho. Right here in the beginning of the story of Ahab, it's just one verse. He just notes it. Uh, verse 34, it says, in the days, in his days, that meaning the days of, of Ahab, Hael of Bethel built Jericho. That's all that's mentioned. This guy, Hiel, Hiel, however you want to say his name, he's never mentioned again in the Bible, much less in the story of Ahab. So why does the author mention him? Why does he include this little detail right here? Because when God brought his people out of Egypt and into the land of Canaan, this promised land, he told them that he was going to give them this land because of the evil practices of Baal worship that had polluted the land. And Jericho is the first city that is destroyed as Israel enters the land. And now it's being rebuilt under the rule of an Israelite king. And the Israelites are worshiping the very gods of the Canaanites that were supposed to be driven out. Israel is becoming Canaan. They are becoming Egypt. The whole land is being re-Canaanized, if you will, under the rule of Ahab, the first city to be destroyed then is now being rebuilt. It's not great. And that's why the author says in verse 33, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. And this is where we need to just pause for a moment and make an observation about the story. And that is there is real evil in the world. There is real evil in the world. Violence, and there have been over 60 murders in Kansas City, Missouri alone this year already. 
injustice, abuse, idolatry. And sometimes those things can seem distant, but, but they are so close. I mean, geographically they're close, but also existentially. Uh, you may be thinking to yourselves, but we don't, we don't do those things. We're not like the Canaanites. Well, not exactly. Of course, we're not exactly like them. But we, we still worship the gods of sex and money and power. Maybe it looks a little bit different, but we still do. Hey, but, hey, but we, at least we don't practice child sacrifice. But, but what about the altar of choice? Or if you ask your career you functionally turn your career into your God, your idol, the thing that you look to to provide you with meaning and significance and provision and hope, that if you do that with your job, with your career, it will command you to sacrifice time with your kids. It will demand you to sacrifice your family. And it will be merciless to you if you don't. We still practice a form of child sacrifice. If you make your kids your savior, if you pour everything you have into them and, and set all your hopes on if I can just raise these kids to be the, the certain kind of person, you will often sacrifice their best interests in pursuit of making them into who you want them to be. Something that you can be proud of so they get into the school that you want. So sure, we don't worship exactly like the Canaanites. There are clearly major differences. But the things that really matter to us, the places we find security, significance, our work, our families, our children, those things will still ask us to sacrifice everything for them. There is real evil in the world. It's real evil here in our hearts. Sometimes we're part of the problem. So don't be surprised by it. So then as we move along in the story with no introduction at all, in chapter 17, verse 1, Elijah comes onto the scene. And not only is he a new character in the story, he's a whole new type of character in the story. He's a prophet, like we saw in the video. There's a, another character in the story of the Bible that is like him. His name was Moses. Uh, Moses was the leader of God's people when they were captured into Egypt and he was the one who God uses to lead his people out. Moses spoke on God's behalf for God's people against Egypt, a pagan nation who was enslaving and oppressing God's people. But Elijah, he's a new kind of prophet because, yes, he speaks for God, but he speaks against God's people because they have become Egypt. You know, the great sin of Egypt, right, was that the Pharaoh was commanding the sacrifice, the killing of all the firstborns of the Israelite people. And now they are becoming a pagan nation themselves who is sacrificing children. And here's what Elijah says. This is how we're introduced to him in verse 1. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe, the region in Gilead, said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Can you imagine the, the audacity of Elijah in this moment? What he says. Let me just, let me just read again what 
he says, As the Lord, the God of Israel is, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. He walks right into the presence of King Ahab, the worst, most evil king that Israel has known, who is married to a woman who worships the storm god, the god who supposedly brings the rain, as we'll see later in the story, who has zero problem with just murdering people, and says, basically, I'm more powerful than your god, Jezebel and Ahab. It's not going to rain unless I say so. Do what you will, Ahab, Jezebel. Worship Baal as much as you want, but it will not rain. There will not even be dew on the ground unless I say so. That's why we spent all that time up front unpacking all that nasty Baal worship stuff because this is what Elijah is doing. He's putting himself into direct conflict with Ahab, direct conflict really between Yahweh and Baal. Who is the one true God, the God of Israel or Baal? Who really provides for his people? Who is really in charge? And Elijah makes this claim, not because of who he is, but because of who Yahweh is, the one for whom he speaks. The Lord, the God of Israel, he is the one who lives. And when you see the word Lord printed in your English Bible, when it's written in small caps, where it's all capitalized, that is the proper name, the Hebrew proper name for God, Yahweh, not Baal. Yahweh, Yahweh, the God of Israel, the one true God. He is the one who lives. And Elijah knows it, and Elijah knows him. And this is where we need to pause again and notice something significant. Yes, there is real evil in the world. And God's people obey anyway. There's real evil in the world, and God's people obey anyway. Elijah obeys the word of God over and over again. God speaks and Elijah does what he says. Even when it looks like he's going to die or when God is calling him to something that seems counterintuitive or doesn't seem to make any sense, he still continues to obey, to trust, to believe. And this is the marker. Indeed, it has always been the marker of what it is to truly be the people of God. Because this is one of the tensions in the story that hopefully you're starting to already feel. Isn't Israel God's people? But aren't they becoming just like the Canaanites? Who really is God's people? Who's really faithful? And what we're going to see in the story is that to be truly the people of God is, is not about national identity or biological relationship. It's always about faith and obedience to the Word of God. True Israel is not just descendants of Abraham or who lived under, those who lived under an Israelite king. Just as simply going to church or being an American doesn't make you a Christian. The mark of those who are truly God's people is that they treasure God's Word and strive to obey it. Jesus makes this abundantly clear. He tells his disciples, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. You see, faith-fueled obedience to God and his word, even when it doesn't make sense, even when it seems like we might die, even when it seems like he's abandoned, with, abandoned us, has always been, has always been, will always be the hallmark, the touchstone, the litmus test of what it is to be God's people. So after speaking this defiant word to Ahab from God, 
that there's going to be no rain, that Yahweh, not Baal, is the one true God, something really unexpected happens to Elijah. He has another word from God come to him. Verse 2, And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here and turn eastward, and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. It's as if God recognizes that if Elijah stays near Ahab for too long, he might not last for very much longer. But there's more going on here than just sort of getting Elijah out of harm's way. And I don't just mean there's more going on in the sense that he's inviting the ravens to come feed Elijah, which is kind of bizarre. He's not sending a football team out to serve him meals. Uh, nor is he, when I first read that this week, and the, the ravens coming to feed him, I kind of imagine the owls from Harry Potter, you know, they deliver the letters that they're bringing little to-go boxes out to Elijah there with food each day. I don't know how the ravens uh, fed Elijah. Um, but I'll just tell you this, this is one of the, the least weird things that happens in Elijah's story going on, so just get ready uh, for that, the fact that he's being fed by, by birds during this time. But that's not what I mean by there's something more going on here. You see, Elijah is God's messenger. He's the one who brings God's words to God's people. And when Elijah is sent into the wilderness means that not only is there now a drought of rain in the land, there's also now going to be a drought of God's Word. God is withdrawing His Word from His people as part of the judgment on them for turning away from Him. And also this is just one more way the author of Kings wants us to see Elijah in the pattern, in this type of Moses because in the story of Moses, when he leads God's people out of slavery in Egypt, Moses brings the people into the wilderness. Now the word of God is going out into the wilderness, away from the people who have become a pagan nation themselves. Elijah is sent into the wilderness. God provides water for his people in the wilderness in the Exodus and food for them, just as God provides food and water for Elijah in the wilderness. Do you see the beauty of how Scripture is put together? I love the Bible. It's, it's, there's such literary artistry, these, these patterns and connections and themes that are woven in, all ultimately pointing us to Jesus. Which leads us to our final observation this morning. And that is that no matter what, God is still with us. God is with Elijah, even with the stream and the birds. God is with the remnant of faithful Israel working to right the wrongs around them. God's even with the wayward, pursuing them, running after Ahab, even in all of this mess and rebellion. And so here's the next step for today, and we're going to get more practical in the weeks ahead, but let's just start with this. If God is with you, what is he asking you to do? To obey, to stand up and to stand out, an area you haven't been trusting him in, or maybe a sin that you need to turn from. If he is with you, even as with, he was with Elijah, and do you believe that, that he's with you? If he is with you, do, what do you need to do to be faithful to him? Or, or maybe you're here this morning, and you're not sure that he's with you. You see the mess all around, the brokenness of the world, but you're not sure if you see the solution 
you're certainly not sure that the solution is the God of the Bible, then what? Well, just being here is a good start. It's a great place to start. Listening to God's word in community, obeying what you do know to be true. Friends, ultimately we have to look beyond this story because God didn't just send Elijah to his people. Elijah had no idea the lengths God would go to be with us. God himself would come. You know, Jesus' name, one of the names of Jesus is with us. Emmanuel means God with us. This is one of the titles of Jesus. And Jesus didn't just comfort us in the wilderness. He enters the wilderness. He doesn't just feed us through the birds. No, he himself is the bread of life. He doesn't just minister to us from afar, but he sends his spirit to dwell within us. And you know that, that some people in the New Testament who met Jesus actually wondered if he was Elijah, come back. Or that it was Moses and Elijah who show up at the transfiguration when Jesus displays his glory to the disciples. Elijah was there. Elijah is a pretty big deal in the story of the Bible and in the history of how God is at work in the world. But we have someone so much greater than Elijah. The one who is greater than all other gods whose name is both Yahweh and Yeshua. Jesus means Yahweh saves. God with us. You see, Baal, he can't even make it rain, but Jesus poured out his own blood to rescue us from our evil, our idolatry, our slavery to ourselves. Baal can't bring life, but Jesus defeats death itself on the cross and sets us free. This is the clearest picture that no matter what, God is still with us. And he's with you. And so... Our passage concludes with Elijah sitting by the stream, wondering what's next. Knowing God is with him, yet wondering what he's going to do, if it actually mattered. And then one morning, Elijah wakes up. His back is stiff from another night of sleeping on the dirt. And he sees this. This is the final verse of our passage. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. I have to come back next week to find out what happens in the rest of the story. <laughs> but for now, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that in Jesus we feast not only on bread, but on the bread of life. That you have provided for us everything that we need, that we don't live on bread alone but that you nourish us in and through the word that you give us and the meal of communion together. As we prepare now to celebrate that, would we experience afresh the joy and thanksgiving of the communion meal. In Jesus' name, amen.